Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Paul's letter to the Philippians this morning. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18. And you might be sitting there thinking, what happened to the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, if you've been with us on Sunday morning and also Sunday night, you know we've been going through Ecclesiastes on Sunday mornings and Philippians on Sunday night. And so with one service a week, we're going to actually alternate the passages as we gather together. And just like last week, the passage in Ecclesiastes was, was perfectly fit for our circumstances. I think you're going to find uh, this passage, the next passage in Philippians, to be insightful as, as well. Now, for those of you who haven't been with us, uh, Paul's going to talk about challenging circumstances this morning. Challenging circumstances. And Paul has outlined this epistle, or I should say this epistle can be outlined in nine parts. In verses 1 and 2, you have Paul's gracious greetings. And then in verses 3 through 11, we saw Paul's thankful prayer. The passage that we're going to be looking at today, Paul's challenging circumstances. Then you have his Christ-like exhortations. Paul talks about his faithful companions in chapter 2, serious warnings that he gives to the church in chapter 3, and then some very familiar passages to you, those joyful instructions in Philippians chapter 4, his thankful praise, and then his friendly farewell. The theme of this wonderful book is the selfless Christian life that brings true joy. You've probably heard the book of Philippians is all about joy. Well, it is, but it's more than just joy. It's the selfless Christian life that brings joy. And we've already been graciously greeted by the apostle in verses 1 and 2. He's taught us about the necessary components of thankful prayer. But immediately following that thankful prayer... Paul begins to address some circumstances that he is going through, specifically challenging circumstances of his imprisonment in Rome. And this is something that is of a great concern to the Philippian church, which is one of the reasons he writes this this letter. In fact, this is where Paul is writing from. After spending a little more than two years in Caesarea, Acts chapter 24 tells us Paul is escorted to Rome after he appeals to to Caesar. And then when he finally arrives in the city, he remains under house arrest for about about two years awaiting trial. He's he's then acquitted, likely released around 63 A.D., about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He goes out and does some additional ministry, and then he's re-arrested again in 68 A.D. This time... He doesn't end up under house arrest, but in a, in a dank cell, not in home confinement. And at the end of this second imprisonment, this very short stint, Paul was found guilty and he was imprisoned a few months later. Now if you add all of that up, the Apostle Paul spent about five years of his ministry confined. And so he can teach us a lot about our current circumstances. What did Paul uh, do in, in these five years, even though it was broken up in, in two-year two year stints? How did the Apostle Paul view these circumstances? Better yet, what does the Bible say that God accomplished 
through these challenging circumstances? Well, we're going to see it's often the opposite of what we might expect. You see, we normally think that things that, that will hinder the church or, or cripple the gospel are actually the very things that, that God uses to, to advance it. God often accomplishes much through our undesirable circumstances. Now, the outline of the passage is, is pretty straightforward. If We're only going to be covering verses 12 through, through 18. But verses 12 through 14, the focus is on the progress of the gospel. I think you can see that very clearly if you look at verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. That's the theme of verses 12 through, four, uh, through 14. Paul's circumstances and the progress of the gospel that, that came about because of those circumstances. And then in verses 15 through 18, the focus is on Paul's joy. In fact, he ends that way in verse 18. His joy specifically because Christ is being proclaimed in the midst of a personality dispute. And I'll show you where that personality dispute is before we, before we leave the, this morning. But in verse 18, Paul says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So it's, it's the joy that Paul gains through, these, through the proclamation of the gospel. Now, neither of those things would I choose, and you probably wouldn't either. I mean, who wants to sign up for evangelism confinement instead of evangelism explosion? Anyone feel a little uninspired in ministry? Who's interested in some conflict to increase your joy? And that's, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says here. That's exactly what this section describes for us. And so Paul shows us two unanticipated advances that happened in challenging circumstances. Two unanticipated advances that happen in challenging circumstances. Paul says there can be a greater progress of the gospel in challenging circumstances. And then he says you can rejoice in a gratifying proclamation of Jesus Christ. You're grateful that Christ is proclaimed to an even greater degree in challenging Circumstances. So a greater progress of the gospel and a gratifying proclamation of Christ. Let's look at the, the first one. The first unanticipated advance is a, is a greater progress of the gospel in verses 12 through 14. And Paul in those two verses shows us that it goes places that it couldn't. He talks about evangelism. And then he says that it grows people that it wouldn't. He talks about the strengthening of the brethren or edification. Look, if you would, at verse, at verse 12. He says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Paul follows up his thankful prayer with an announcement. He says, I want you to know something. This is a common phrase in Greek that would be to arrest people's attention or get their attention. It would be like what we would say is, I have an announcement to make. So 
That's what Paul's doing here. He wants to make an announcement. He wants to draw their attention to something specific. Now, what you would expect that, that comes next would be Paul to talk about his circumstances. Paul to talk about his imprisonment. Maybe how he got there. Maybe he would give a rendition of the harrowing journey uh, across the, the Mediterranean and the shipwreck, that, that how, deliver, how God delivered him from that. Because this is exactly what the, the Philippians were, were concerned about. They were concerned about the Apostle Paul. They were worried, and so he's writing a letter. You remember they even, they even sent someone there to the church to, to assist Paul and to find out how things are going. But that's not what Paul announces. One commentator said in a news report like this, you'd expect a narrative about his arrest, his imprisonment, maybe, maybe some drawings of the prison guards or a diary of Paul's daily activities, a menu of meals, uh, maybe a discourse of his feelings, but, but none of that's here. There's absolutely nothing about the Apostle Paul in this, in this passage. Paul is not concerned about his personal details, his personal comfort, or anything else. He's only concerned about the gospel's advance, and so that's what he wants to tell them about. From Paul's perspective, the most important thing that happened was the progress of the gospel through his situation. He says, my circumstances, meaning the things related to me, where I'm at right now, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Not just the progress of the gospel, but the greater progress of the gospel. Instead of hindering the Apostle Paul's primary goal. That's Paul's primary goal. He's the, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. He's the missionary apostle. He, he takes the gospel everywhere he goes. And instead of hindering Paul's primary goal, which was preaching Christ, he says his current circumstances, being confined, did the opposite. His confinement had increased his effectiveness. That's what the Apostle Paul says. And that's what we all long for, right? I hope so. We all want to see the gospel of Jesus Christ spread or multiply to, to all people. I mean, if you don't desire that, then, then that's where you need to start with this message this morning. You need to, to ask the Lord to give you a desire to see the gospel progress and then repent if you're a believer. I mean, that, that's why you're here. That's the whole purpose of, of, of living. And unless you can say yes to that question, I desire to see the gospel progress, then the rest of what the Apostle Paul says is not going to make a whole lot of sense to you. I mean, why suffer? Why, why give? Why go through persecution? Why go through hardship? If it doesn't matter whether the gospel progresses. However, if the progress of the gospel is the mandate of our master, and that's the desire of our heart as, as his followers, then your goal will be to seek that and however God accomplishes that purpose whatever circumstances that you find yourself, yourself in. You see, we often make a crucial error whenever we evaluate our circumstances. We interpret God's potential through our circumstances. And Paul says God often operates the opposite way that, that we would, would probably think. The gospel advancing by Paul being confined for four years would be the exact opposite of what we would expect, isn't it? 
we think things like how the coronavirus is going to hinder vital mission trips over the summer. But Paul is thinking how his crisis is going to advance the gospel, not, not hinder it. A friend of mine said, the gospel is like a dandelion. When the winds of difficulty blow on it, it simply spreads its airy seeds all over. You probably remember doing that as a kid, picking up a dandelion and blowing on it. It's a great illustration as you think about difficulty. The winds of difficulty blow on the church, blow on the gospel, and all that does is spread it all over, all over the world. You can see that all through the book of Acts. When the hot breath of Jewish persecution came to the church in Jerusalem, it just scattered the church outside of Jerusalem throughout the Roman world. It may have seemed like the church was hindered, but it instead sowed the seeds of the gospel all over Israel. The apostle Paul, whenever he was Saul, sure seemed like he was having a great effect until he had an encounter on on a horse. You see the same thing repeated in church history. When Roman persecution came to the early church and heresy threatened its message, it seemed like it would destroy the the fledgling church. But it only purified the church. And the heresy gave way to the apologists that codified and clarified orthodox doctrine. This is the pattern all over the Bible. What Satan or men mean for evil, what seems like contrary winds and contrary circumstances, God ends up working for good. Joseph's imprisonment leads to the protection of his family in Egypt. Israel in Egypt leads to the Exodus, the law and the promised land. Saul leads to David. Bathsheba leads to Solomon. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ leads to the salvation of of many. You see the way God works? Paul says in contrast to him being bound, the gospel actually spread further because of his circumstances. And what we think is insufficient and small and anemic is actually what God uses to send the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. And our most boastful methods, what we think will accomplish great things, often fizzle and fall short of doing anything of eternal value. You see, for Paul, advancing the name of Christ and the focus of his earthly life were inseparable. It didn't matter where he was. It didn't matter what circumstances that he was under. Christ and my life is inseparable. You can hear that all the way through the book of Philippians. Paul's life was focused was not focused on where he was, but on who he served. There was not one way to live and think when things were going well and another way when he was hindered under house arrest. His sole goal at all times, my life, Christ. That's what Paul thinks about. Is that how you think? Whether alive or dead, in prosperity or want, freedom or bound, my desire... My only desire is for the progress of the gospel. I wish I could say that that was the way that I thought all of the time. But like you, I have unredeemed flesh that I have to battle against. It will change the way that you think about things like a financial crisis or a pandemic. It, will, it doesn't mean that those things aren't irritants or difficulties, but, but the goal behind them, what, what you see in them will Will change. You'll start looking at these things as opportunities, not as enemies. 
if you can connect Christ to, to your only purpose for living? How can I use my circumstance for Christ? Inconveniences will become anticipations for God to advance His work. What do you think uh, Paul did while confined in that room with the Roman guard and others came around him? Do, do you think he wasted one second complaining about his inconveniences or, or, or how bad the government was bungling his, his case or his crisis. I've been here two years and, and then I have to wait another two years. What's wrong with this court system? You think he was fearful? Or how it would affect his summer plans? Oh, you know, Timothy and I were, were going to the Med over the summer. We were going to the Grecian coast and now we can't. No, he was using every second to tell everyone around him, about his Savior, the one who had allowed him to be confined there so he could tell them about their Creator. That's what the Apostle Paul was doing. Even the word that he uses here for progress, the things have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Even the word progress means moving forward against obstacles. Uh, it's a word used to describe explorers hacking the, the, their, their way through the underbrush leaving a, a path behind. I understand it, it doesn't feel as good looking in the, in the front of the weed eater as it does behind it. I mean, looking back at the progress, some sweat and that string is made is encouraging, but whenever you, when you look out over the yard that's uncut, you, you think, ugh. But it's different whenever you look behind you, isn't it? Notice how, uh, Paul describes what kind of progress... He means here, the gospel progressed, greater progress, uh, progression because of his circumstances. Then he actually describes it. Look, if you would, at verse, verse 13. He says, So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole palace, better praetorian guard, and everyone else, and that... Most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Paul says God causes the gospel to, to go places that it couldn't, and it grows people that, that it wouldn't. There's an, he describes an evangelistic progress, and, and he describes edification here, progress and edification in verse 14. There's an external advancement, and then there's an internal accomplishment happening in the, in the brethren. And Paul starts here with this evangelistic growth. It goes places. The progress was the gospel went places that it, it couldn't have unless Paul was, was in these circumstances. He says Christ became known throughout the whole praetorian guard. Now some of your translations, uh, as I alluded to in verse 13, will, will say so that my bonds in Christ are, are manifest in all the palace. And the word for palace is praetorium, which is not a place, but it's a specific group of people. We, we know that. And so Paul says because of his, the restriction, the restrictions that, that, that he was under, if it hadn't been for them, his ministry would not be open to this new area. It could have, it could have never gone to this place where, where it's going now. You see how it's the opposite of what, what you would think? Paul says his restriction actually leads to accessibility. He says now he had access to the elite praetorian and guard. It was a force of about 
9,000 special forces. You might think of them as the, the Navy SEALs of, of Rome. It was a very powerful group of, of men. They even, at times, exercised control over Caesar. One commentator uh, noted that they assassinated Caligula. They put Claudius uh, on, the, on the throne. They even influenced the, the direction of Nero's reign. This is while the Apostle Paul is, is imprisoned. And Paul said because of his circumstances, he now has access to this group of, of powerful men. I read that, my mind went back to a time whenever I was still working for, for Anthem, Blue Cross Blue Shield, um, multi-multi-billion dollar company. And I can remember, this has been 20 years ago probably, the CEO... Uh, of that company sent us word that the CFO, the guy who handled all of those billions of dollars, the CFO of this, of this multi-state corporation traded on Wall Street, had a, a terminal brain cancer diagnosis. And I can remember because of my position at, at Anthem, I was able to share with this man the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can remember sending him, sending him a communication. Now, anybody could do that, but I can tell you that if I was just an average Joe, I wouldn't have been able to... He probably wouldn't have opened my, my letter or my email that I, that I sent to him. And there was a circumstance where... Not a difficult circumstance, just a circumstance where Paul... Or where God had me in a position that I might be able to to have access to somebody that I wouldn't have had access to in, in any other way. How are your circumstances? How are your circumstances? Giving you access to people that you would not have had access to before. Paul says that his circumstances, because of them, he now has access to this group of powerful men. He said, they know that I am in chains for Christ. That's what he says in verse 13. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ, has become well known. Paul says, I want to make it clear to every, uh, that everyone understood I was arrested, not because I was a criminal, but because of my association with Jesus Christ. These were Caesar's chains, but they were evidenced of, evidences of Christ's power because they were resulting in the, the further spread of the gospel. Paul's bonds proved that Christ is Lord, not Caesar. G. Walter Hansen has an excellent hypothetical conversation about what it might have been like between Paul and, and the, the guards in his book on Philippians. He says, imagine a guard coming on duty to watch Paul. He has no idea who Paul is. And so he asks him the most common question directed at prisoners. Why are you here? Why, why are you in chains? And Paul's answer went something like this. I am in chains because I belong to Christ. I serve Him. Jesus Christ in humility and obedience to God, uh, God's will died for our sins on a Roman cross under Roman power. Jesus Christ is now the risen and exalted Lord above all powers. Christ called me to proclaim the good news about Him among the nations. Christ is the Savior of all who trust Him, one day everyone will recognize and worship Christ as Lord of all. Undoubtedly, he says, something like that would have been Paul's answer. 
How do you answer when someone asks you what to do about your current circumstances? Maybe the, the virus or, or your 401k. Or what about if you lose your job or not being able to take the trip that you hoped that you would take? When someone asks you, what about that? That exact opportunity happened um, to me this past week, and it can happen whenever you least expect it. I called a very well-known mutual fund last week to move some money around like a lot of folks are, are doing. And it took forever to get through, as you can imagine. And when I finally got a hold of the investor specialist who... He got me on the phone, he had to contact my old IRA company to do a rollover and we got cut off several times and each time I had to call back and go back through the queue again, you know, punch one for English, uh, punch two for whatever else it is and, and it was an ordeal. And when we finally finished the transaction after about 30 minutes, Right before I was getting ready to hang up, the, the guy on the other line says, can I help you with anything else? And I said, no, I'm good. Uh, have a great day. He said, can I ask you a question? And I thought he was going to do a survey like they do. You know, he, he helped me. And I was actually thinking in my mind, I hope this guy doesn't ask me for a survey because this was a horrible experience. This was, was really bad. <laughs> and I said, sure, yeah, yeah, you can ask me a question. And he says, are you a pastor? And I was thinking, well, that's a really odd question to get from a, an investment advisor. This is a recorded call. He could see my email address. And I said, well, well, yes, I am. And his reply was with some anxiety in his voice, what do you think about everything that's, that's going on? What, what do you think about what's happening? And for the next several minutes, I, I shared the gospel with him. I said, well, I'd have probably given you a lot, of different, a lot different answer at 24 years of age. And then I just launched. And his final reply to me was, I think it was meant for me to talk to you today. And I replied, I do too. You never know when an opportunity is going to come. But if your heart is, is not focused on, on the progress of the gospel, if it's so focused on your circumstances and your confinement, then you're not going to be ready for that moment. And what was going on in my heart was I was frustrated at the queue and the, the time that was being wasted because I have all of these things that, that I need to do for you, for the church. And, and here God has a gospel opportunity right there. And when you're asked about difficulties or life in general, I hope you answer with Christ. Do you view all events in your life through the lens of being His follower and getting the gospel to the uttermost ends of the earth? That's what we're supposed to do. Caesar was not Lord. The chains were not Paul's master. And the coronavirus is not what controls your life. These are all opportunities to magnify the Lord. But it wasn't only the guards that the gospel reached. Look, if you would, at verse 13. Paul talks about another group here. He says, So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to others or to everyone else. Who is that? Well, Paul actually defines them 
in the closing of the letter. Look at Philippians 4, 21-22 on the screen there. The brethren who are with me greet you, and all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, Paul is writing to the Philippians, and he's sending them a letter about his circumstances and the progress of the gospel, and he mentions especially those of Caesar's household. Why do you, why do you think he highlights those in Nero's household? And how do you think that they heard about Christ while living in Rome? Well, they heard it from the guards. Who heard it from Paul? Both people who wouldn't have heard otherwise. Now think about this. Think about how God is working in this circumstance in the Apostle Paul's life. Paul was allowed to preach the gospel because he was under house arrest, unhindered. And he was allowed to preach to people who had never heard. That's never, that never happens in Paul's ministry. Everywhere Paul went, read the book of Acts and the missionary journeys. Every place he went, he faced opposition. He was kicked out of synagogues. He was expelled from towns. He, riots started over his message. They, they have to sneak him out of town at, at one time. But now for two years, Paul's church services happened under, under security. His security team was SEAL Team 6. Try stoning him and shutting him up now. He was unhindered in preaching the gospel. No riots, no rocks, no opposition. His opponents thought they were stopping him by his arrest, but God simply used it to make the message go further than it ever would have before. And that's what God can do with, a, with any type of difficult circumstance. Turns things upside down and actually uses what seems to be a hindrance to progress the, the church. And one of the ways that happens is he... God uses it to strengthen others. It goes places it couldn't. It grows people that it wouldn't. Look, if you would, at verse 14. And that most of the brethren, notice he shifts here from those who heard the gospel to now those who are believing the gospel. And that most of the, the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Paul now turns to the people that it grows. His imprisonment motivated others in the church to take a public stand for Christ. To become confident means to be so convinced that one puts confidence in something. G. Walter Hansen again says, Most believers were so convinced by the impact of Paul's witness while he was in chains that they put their confidence in the Lord to empower their witness as well. Courage is contagious, isn't it? James Montgomery Boyce describes a cartoon about how a bad attitude spreads. He said, first, the boss of a company spoke harshly to one of his employees. This put his employee in a bad mood, and when he arrived home, he had a nasty word for his wife. She, in turn, yelled at the son, who kicked the dog, who went outside and bit the boss of the company while he was taking a walk. A bad attitude can spread. But Paul says the opposite is true as well. Paul would easily have reason to complain, wouldn't he? He'd been accused unjustly. Roman law has been very slow to do anything about his case. He, 
He was in prison for two years. Now he's been shipped off to Rome to sit again. And, and while he has freedom, he's under constant supervision of a guard. He could have easily begun to grumble, say this is wrong, this is unjust. Maybe even see the guard as a, as a representative of the man that's holding him down. But he looks beyond his circumstances and people and sees God and his purpose. Think about how watching the Lord strengthen others to endure hardship often strengthens you because that's what is happening here. Other Christians in Rome are watching the Apostle Paul be unconcerned about his circumstances and God using that. Paul speaking a bold witness and is strengthening them. Are you not inspired whenever you watch the movie Luther or you read Martin Luther when he says, here I stand, I can do no other in the face of the Roman Catholic Church. Or when you read about Polycarp, when threatened with being burned, he, he warned his judge that while the, the proconsul's fire lasts but a while, the fires of judgment reserved for the ungodly cannot be quenched. Does that not put some fire in your gullet? I hope it does. Then when the soldiers grabbed Polycarp to nail him to the stake, he stopped them and said, Leave me as I am, for he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the, the pyre unmoved without the security that you desire from these nails. It strengthens you, doesn't it? It's not a coincidence. It's not confidence in Paul, but a confidence in the Lord by watching Paul. You see the Lord in his life. As I said, spiritual courage is contagious. And it often takes courage to speak of Christ. You have no problem whatsoever talking to somebody about the, about the football game or the weather. But turn the conversation to Jesus Christ and speak a particular word about Him and you'll feel like that you're wearing a MAGA hat in the CNN lobby. That'll be a cakewalk compared to a bold witness for Jesus Christ. It puts you on the side of Christ when you do that. Immediately divides the company. If they're not in Christ, then that becomes very evident. And you'll need courage. And God gives you that by watching other faithful Christians face challenging circumstances for the gospel. And His name being proclaimed is what brings you, brings you joy. That's the second unanticipated advance. It's unanticipated. Paul's talking about advances that are taking place here. Advances with the gospel and advances in his heart. He doesn't expect this. You wouldn't expect this to take place. But he gives an unanticipated advance in challenging circumstances. The second one is, is being gratified in the proclamation of the gospel. If you would have verse 15. Paul says, Some, to be sure, are preaching... Christ, even from envy and strife, but some also from, from goodwill. Paul shows the second unexpected thing that happens in difficulty. You find joy. Isn't that unexpected? You don't find, expect to find joy in, difficult, uh, in difficulty. He starts by describing the mixed ambition of his opponents around him. People are, are preaching the gospel and they're doing it for specific reasons. While Paul is, is bound, they think that it's keeping Paul from doing ministry. Paul says it's further progress of the gospel is happening. And yet, they, there are people that are preaching and they have mixed ambitions. And then he ends with where he finds joy, his main aspiration. In light of all things, it's found in verse 18. It should be your main aspiration in light of all things. 
Paul starts by describing the mixed ambition of, of two groups of people who knew about his imprisonment. Both groups preach a real gospel. One does so out of envy, and Paul says one does so out of, uh, out of goodwill. We know both, both groups are believers, and you know, because of uh, what Paul says here, he says some and others, and the antecedent to that is brothers in verse 14. So he calls them brothers, even the bad group, even the envious group here. And we know that they preach Christ because Paul says they do three times in verses 15 and 17 and 18. They, they preach the true gospel, both groups, but not out of pure motives. The first group was motivated to preach Christ because they thought their preaching would cause Paul more trouble. Their issue is not their attitude toward the gospel, but their stance toward Paul. They didn't like Paul. They had an issue with Paul. There was a conflict, and, and we can see the source in verse 15. <clears throat> it was in their heart. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. It was out of competition. They felt some form of competition for the, the Apostle Paul. These are pretty strong words. I mean, I, the reason I emphasize to you that these are believers and they preach the real gospel is because of the way Paul describes them here. I mean, these are words of, of, of unbelievers. These are words of a, of a wicked heart, envy and strife. They're works of the flesh, according to Galatians. It's the morbid interest of, of false teaching. In 1 Timothy 6, it's the evidence of people unslaved by all kinds of passions before salvation. In Titus 3, envy and rivalry. It's all about personal enmity. Walter Hansen said the envious person works to harm and ruin the object of envy. And the object of, of their envy was, was Paul. So why does Paul use these terms and yet call these men Christians? Because Christians can act like unbelievers if their hearts rejoice in something other than Jesus Christ. You take your eyes off of Christ, especially in difficult circumstances, and you will find how, how base and depraved your, your unredeemed flesh remains to be. I mean, it's, it's amazing. If you allow your focus to become someone you dislike, and you let that grow and fester, you can grow weeds in your heart like you had before you came to Christ. And the success of Paul had sown seeds of envy in the hearts of other Christians in, in Rome, and they used his imprisonment to add insult to, to, energy, uh, to injury. I'm sure you've never done that. Rejoiced inside when you perceived that your enemy fails, somebody that you thought was your enemy. But Paul says there's another group here. There's, there's mixed ambitions. There's another group that's preaching. And it was out of goodwill toward Paul. Look at verse 15 again. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but others also from goodwill. That, that means the purpose of their preaching was to express goodwill toward Paul. Again, true gospel. Paul is the focus here. They stepped into the void left by Paul's imprisonment, and they carried out his work. That's the idea because they desired to help Paul fulfill his mission. And it was out of love that they were seeking to serve Paul in contrast to the ones who, who preached out of selfish ambition to harm Paul. This group immediately picks up the banner that they thought that 
Paul had to put down and they start waving it. Now, you have the context for why Paul warns about this attitude in Philippians 2.3 when he warns to do nothing out of selfish ambition because he sees it all around him right here. What kind of trouble they hope to cause Paul is unclear, but what is clear from the passage is we have a, enough info to convict us about our motivations, don't we? The Christian life is described as a race to finish, but not between competitors. You're running for the prize, not against people, especially people in the church. And our motives are exposed in our ambitions and our actions, just like these, these men if you would at verses 16 and 17. Now, some of your translations are going to invert these two verses, but they say the same thing. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from your motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. You see how the focus is on Paul? Some preach, that's action out of love, some out of selfish ambition. You ever heard somebody say, you can't see my heart? You don't know what my motive is. That's true. You can't see motives, but you can't see action. And you can discern some things from those actions. I can't see Kenneth Copeland's heart, but I can sure see his works and listen to his preaching. And it's not hard to discern the motives that are behind somebody like him or, or Benny Hinn. Now, you read the rest of Philippians or any, uh, any of other Paul's epistles, and he's not kind toward Judaizers or people that pervert the gospel. In fact, he kicks them in the teeth. He, he calls them dogs and sorcerers and otherwise. But he doesn't say that about these because they're preaching a true gospel and the focus is on Paul. And Paul doesn't care anything about himself. He only cares about the gospel of Christ. Paul says he can tell these preachers their motives by their actions, their ambitions. Can you tell what your motives are? Your actions? You say, oh, I, I love people. I just love people. Are you selfless? In service? Oh, I, I'm a humble person. I'm not a proud person. Do you get frustrated when others fail you? Or are you angered when your opinion is disregarded? You see, the way that you respond to things is a, is a, better, is a better test of, than what you think. One group was motivated by goodwill and acted out of love and, and the other uh, out of envy and strife which revealed their personal ambitions. Personal ambitions. Self-focus, Paul says. And what was unexpected is both of them brought Paul joy. Both of them brought the apostle Paul joy. Look, if you would, at how he finishes this whole thing out in verse 18. What then? After he describes these two groups of people. Their focus is to hurt him. His focus is to add insult to injury while he is imprisoned. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. After exposing their motives, Paul basically says, so what? So what? 
We don't have to guess about the Apostle Paul's ambition. It's viewed in his actions. It's viewed in, in how he, he saw his challenging circumstances that came from, from his confinement and from others that responded to Paul's predicament. It was Christ alone. And so his joy actually increases. As I said, when Paul's dealing with Judaizers or somebody who compromised the Gospels, he blew them out of the water. He attacked them as, as mutilators. But when people attacked him personally, as long as Christ was preached, he has no concern. Zero. That's what this means. So, so what then? Who cares? He exposes their motives and then says more other than, than all of that, I, I rejoice that Jesus is proclaimed. And that's how you should rejoice regardless of your circumstances as well. And you say that's hard to do. That's right. That's why this is in the Bible. So you can be strengthened by what you see God doing in the Apostle Paul and ask God to do the same thing in you. Paul's main motivation was the advancement of Christ, not the improvement of Paul. And sadly, a lot of times in my life, my focus is the improvement of Brian, not the advancement of Christ. In crisis and containment, his goal is greater progress of the gospel. And in ridicule and favor, his main desire was the greater proclamation of Christ. You see, Paul can be tempted just as much by those who were, who were, who were doing it out of, out of selfish ambition, out of hatred toward him. He can be tempted by the others that comes to his defense and he can be puffed up by that. Ridicule or favor? So what? My main desire is a greater proclamation of Christ. And Paul was Christ-centered. And he was gospel-focused about his reputation. And that's what brings the unexpected benefit. Containment of Paul? God causes the gospel to go and, and believers to, to grow. Criticism and competition? God causes... True believers to rejoice in what's truly important. You ever had that happen? Praise comes, criticism comes, and, and that gives you an opportunity to actually evaluate. And Wait a minute. The only thing that really matters is the Lord. One of the simplest ways to test where you're at on this second point is to see how you react when when someone praises you and how you react when someone speaks ill of you. See how you feel when an, uh, an opponent uh, wins, uh, wins an argument or they're blessed. Or see how you feel when you win and you clearly triumph over somebody who is your opponent. It's a clear test of your heart. You'll find out very quickly whether your main concern is Christ's name or your own reputation. As a pastor, the person who left the church and bad-mouthed you out the door gets plugged in somewhere else and seems like they're, they're growing and being used. How do you feel? <laughs> do you think, well, praise God. Uh, I mean, I'm thankful the church is advancing, even if it's not mine. A person at work who always seems to, to get by with everything when, when you get called out on it, do, do you think, well, God must have wanted, me to, wanted to humble me in some way. I'm thankful for His work in my heart. How we react when our enemies prosper or whenever they're put down is a true test of our hearts. Paul is talking about men who are truly preaching the gospel, but their own pride led them to disparage Paul, and they have mingled motives. 
And when that happens, Paul says, you lead them to their own master and you rejoice that Christ is being proclaimed. You're a fellow slave anyway. Who are you to criticize the master's servants? And Paul's selflessness brought him joy. That's the theme of the book, isn't it? The selfless Christian life that brings joy. And that's what's advancing. That's what will bring you joy in any challenge. To remember, God doesn't always work the way that you expect. Seemingly bad things can bring great advancements. And he is not bound just because we are. And you can do great work while you're restricted. These are opportunities, not inconveniences. And your main motive in life is the fame of His name and the spread of the, of the gospel. And any mixed motives will lead you with a mingled focus and leave you without joy. What good could God be accomplishing in our current crisis? Well, I have no idea. But there's a sovereign God who does, and He's orchestrating all things. Just like that man that I wasn't expecting to have that question asked me on the, on the phone. I don't know what God's doing in all of this. I don't know how it's all going to end, but I know God and I know His purposes and I know what He'll do and I know what Jesus Christ has promised. He'll be exalted and He'll be on the throne. He's on the throne right now and His kingdom is coming. I'd say there's probably two things that are happening that you can probably discern. There are two things that we, that we pride ourselves on as human beings, in particular in our great nation. We pride ourselves on our freedoms and our prosperity. And our circumstances are confronting both of them, aren't they? Our freedoms are being restricted and our prosperity is being challenged. You see, being self-sufficient might be a human virtue, but it's not a Christian one. Christ submitted to the Father and we humble ourselves under His mighty hand that He may exalt us in His time. And until then, we remember unanticipated advances that God can bring, a greater progress of the gospel and a gratifying proclamation of Christ. Progress and joy come through being centered on Him. Let's pray. Father, I come before you right now and I thank you for your grace and I thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word, even in unconventional circumstances. Thank you for this technology, Lord. Yet your word is like a fire. It consumes the dross. It's, it's like a sword that runs us through any time we hear it. And I thank you for the work that you have done in us through your truth today. I pray, Lord, that as we look around and we, we feel some of the things that we have been told not to feel. That we would be reminded that joy can come. Joy comes when we focus on, on Christ, His name being exalted. And regardless of what the circumstances seem like, you are working in greater progress of the gospel. Help us to embrace that. Use us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.